some time ago, I was um, interested, curious about working with a particular teacher that I'd heard about that many of my friends had visited in India and had learned a lot from. And I told a few people that I was interested in studying with this particular person. This person gave me a video of the person teaching. One can preview one's gurus these days <laughs> through technology. So I received this, um, this video, and it was good. It was very, made me drawn to going and working with this person. Um, he was very happy and um, very good way of answering questions. And uh, it was a home video. There were a lot of people around, and I saw friends there. And it was very cozy. It was a very <laughs> cozy situation. And at one point, towards the end of the video, someone, the person who was um, kind of working the whole thing, put a microphone up to him and said something like, you know, what do you want to say to the folks back home, <laughs> sort of thing. And he looked right straight. It seemed like he was looking right straight into the camera, you know, at one and gave this very big smile, this big beaming smile, and he said, stay home. <laughs> and I thought, this could be taken on a number of different levels. <laughs> the first is that, you know, too many in people in India already and um, I'm, you know, teaching enough students, so don't bother to come, kind of thing. But that didn't make a whole lot of sense, someone who seemed so evolved to say that he didn't want to have any more students. The second option <laughs> I could think of was that one doesn't need to go anywhere. You know, why does one need to come see me um, in order to find out what's in your own heart? You know, so don't bother, in other words, just stay home because it doesn't make any sense to come to India when you can do it in Cambridge or Kansas or wherever it is that you are. So I thought of this as the second option. And the third option that um, was the most subtle and profound and really got me, um, something I really learned from, was the option of hearing stay home as Stay home within yourself. You know, whether you're in India or Kansas or Cambridge or anywhere, stay home within your own experience. Stay home within your own heart. It quite um, touched me and um, was very, very helpful, so I pass it on to you. The last words of the Buddha were, be a lamp unto yourself which in a way is the same thing. Rely on yourself, stay home, see what's happening inside of yourself. We do this when we live our own life, when we're inside of our own experience, not attempting to live what isn't ours, not attempting to try and live anyone else's life, which is impossible anyway, but to live inside 
of our own experience, to live inside of our own bodies, to be at home within our minds, within our feelings, to stay home. Meditation is very much a process of making our experience our own. We think it's ours already. But through the practice of mindfulness, of being in contact with that which is happening from moment to moment, we really truly view and are in experience in a very different way. Not absorbed, not lost, but conscious of living our own life inside of our own experience. It's living life from the inside out. Inside, insight arises from inside. So it's living our life from the inside out rather than through various influences on us externally. And this manifests through authenticity. It manifests through living an authentic life, living an authentic life within, and living an authentic life in the world. We notice when someone does live an authentic life, we're struck by it. It's very visible. And it is a possibility for each one of us to live each moment in an honest, in an authentic way, in a way that holds integrity. Living an authentic life means living a life of integrity. Integrity is the opposite of fragmentation. Fragmentation is when we're different in different situations. We're different with our children than we are with our employer or than we are with our employees or than we are with our families. A sense of fragmentation where there's a differentness, where we're influenced and conditioned by the environment. Integrity means living inside ourselves wherever it is that we are, whatever the environment, whatever the situation, whatever the influences are on us. It's living our own life. When we live inside, when we do live an authentic life, when we do touch that which is true from moment to moment, whether it's a sensation, or a thought, or a feeling, whatever it may be, there is the possibility of there being comfort even when the situation is painful, even when the experience is painful. If we're inside of it, it's very different than feeling oppressed from outside. If we're inside of ourselves, then there's a certain integration that can happen, and we could integrate the feelings of discomfort. <clears throat> Authenticity, living an authentic life, is a way of cutting through various levels of deception. It's a cultural habit to pretend that things are other than the way they are. We can see it in a lot of different ways. 
in our life of meditation. It's living in such a way that we're honest to whatever it is that's occurring, whatever the content may be, without pretense, without deception. Each one of us has this yearning. When we hear the word authentic, there's a stirring in the heart. Each one of us has the yearning to live in an authentic way, to live in a way that's not deceptive to ourselves, that's honest with ourselves. And yet, some of the time, maybe much of the time, we live in alienation. We live with a sense of isolation. How can we live with authenticity all of the time without there being the gaps of alienation, of isolation? Basically, the way to live an authentic life is to recognize the ways in which we don't, to recognize the areas of inauthenticity, of self-deception, of places where we're not awake, not conscious, to notice these places. Automatically, in noticing inauthenticity, there is immediately an authenticity. One is once again inside of oneself in noticing the lack of it. We can notice inauthenticity as any kind of movement out of the body-mind experience, any way in which we fly out of ourselves, any way in which we fly out of our own bodies or out of our minds, any way in which we're not ourselves. One way we might notice this, one way we can notice inauthenticity is through Noticing how we try to imitate others. Sometimes it's very easy to notice in a retreat atmosphere, perhaps you've noticed over the last couple of days, how there may be a tendency at times to try and take someone else's experience on because they look more mindful than you. you know, because they have the appearance of mindfulness. Anything could be going on in their mind, of course. It could be absolutely you know, in Hawaii. But because of looking mindful, there's the tendency to try to imitate how mindfulness looks. You know, mindfulness doesn't look anyway. It it isn't its beingness. It doesn't look anyway. But because we're not at ease or comfortable in our own experience, and we think that can't be mindfulness because it's ours, there's a tendency many times to try and take on another person's experience. So you might notice, perhaps at lunchtime when eating, um, perhaps in the effort to slow down, it might feel a little awkward or something to, to eat a little bit more slowly than usual. And you might notice just little peeping around at how other people are eating. And perhaps adjusting, a very subtle, very subtle, slight adjustment of maybe moving slightly slower than you were before you peaked. Maybe moving slightly faster. Oh, I look pretentious, you know, so maybe I should hurry it up and eat in a more normal way, you know? And there's, there's this subtle kind of taking on or imitating 
You can also maybe notice it in the walking meditation, where you're walking, and the walking isn't okay as I am walking. And so how are other people walking? And maybe someone's walking a little bit differently than you, maybe a little faster or a little slower. Oh, that's the way to do it. You know, one was quite fine when one was walking alone. But then one sees another person and, ah, it has to be right because it's not me. Always that kind of rationale. And it's a way that we fly out of ourselves. We fly out of our own experience. And our own experience becomes invalid. It becomes not true anymore. It becomes true again immediately upon seeing the imitating. Every time we can see that subtle effort to imitate. No need for judgment or blame in that situation. Seeing it is plenty. Seeing it is enough because right away one is back inside of one's own experience. It's that simple. You, know, you see the, the subtlety of it, you can immediately come back into the experience that is occurring for you. There's a, a wonderful Yiddish saying, if I should be someone else, who would be me? <laughs> you know, if I should be someone else, then who would take the place of me? If you should be someone else, who would take the place of you? There can only be one, one of each one of us. We might also notice the inauthenticity in noticing that there is sometimes a gap between how things should be and how things actually are. How I should be in any any given moment and how things actually are, how I actually am in any given moment. This split that we create when we want things to be a certain way, they should be a certain way, and there's a certain tension of judgment around that. And yet, actually, what we're seeing is something quite different than that. When we're stuck in the should, again, there is this sense of flying out of our own experience. There is this sense of inauthenticity. If we're in the should, when actually the am is happening, that gap is a signal that there's some sense of inauthenticity occurring. And so if we can notice this and bridge the gap with acceptance, immediately authenticity is happening once again. If we can bring acceptance to the should, to the am, it creates a bridge between the should and the am, how things should be, how I am. It creates a bridge, this acceptance, And then immediately, in acceptance, here I am once again, authentic in the experience that is happening right now, whatever that experience may be. We might find ourselves clinging to self-images of some sort or another, to the good yogi, bad yogi syndrome seeing ourselves, attaching to ourselves as a bad yogi, and then thinking that everyone else is judging us because, of course, we're not doing things correctly. So feeling that sense of judgment and taking it from outside. 
who knows what is happening in other people's minds, probably very self-preoccupied with their own experience. And yet, everyone is judging me. This can be a, a sense that we have. So once again, to notice this brings us back inside. There can also be a, a good yogi kind of syndrome around um, sort of, I am doing it correctly. It's sort of a, a grandiose feeling where everybody should look at me because I am doing it correctly. And so there's a self-consciousness when I bring my hand up to take a, a bite or when I walk through the hall. or you know, There's a sense of being seen. There's a self-conscious sense of being seen. And once again, it's not real. It's not true. And so in that, once again, there is a sense of inauthenticity. Another way where we can be aware of a sense of inauthenticity is in wishing something other than what is happening or happening. Eating an apple and wishing it were a banana. Drinking a a cup of tea and wishing it were apple juice. Being in one situation and wishing we were in another situation. Being with one person, wishing we were with another person. For those of us who have done retreats before, sometimes one can notice that when you're off retreat, there's the wishing to be on retreat. When we're on retreat, there's the wishing to be off retreat. (laughs) So it goes back and forth. There's the wishing always for something to be other than the way it is. And in this, we can notice that we're out. In that moment, we're out of our life. We're not living our life any longer. We're out of our life. There can also be the waiting for what's important to begin happening. And we can spend an awful lot of our time doing that. We can spend an awful lot of our day doing that, an awful lot of our life doing that, sort of being on the edge of our cushion, you know, waiting for something to happen. Waiting. The next moment has got to bring what I want. You know, the next hour, the next day, the next year has got to bring what I want. And in the meantime, we're missing our life. In the meantime, we're not living our own life. In the nurturing of authenticity, we can recognize the refuge of being in our own experience. We can see that looking outside for validation, for approval, is an unsafe, insecure way to live. And that the real refuge is in being with ourselves, is being inside of ourselves. Another way of nurturing authenticity is by taking responsibility. When we don't take responsibility for reactions that we have, blaming is the tendency. Blaming is what happens. And when we blame, we're in a situation where we're under someone or some situation's power. Immediately, there's a losing of power. By taking responsibility, Once again, we can live our own life. Let me read you a, it's called an autobiography in five chapters by Portia Nelson. 
Chapter 1 I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in this same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I fall in. It's a habit. <laughs> but my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5 I walk down a different street. <laughs> this is taking responsibility. Someone who has accomplished it and written it down in five, five short chapters. We might also look at the various compromises that we make, just to continue to question the compromises that we make, aware that sometimes it is the right thing to be silent. And other times, we are making unnecessary compromises that need examination, that need to be looked at. In every tradition, um, every tradition has its problems, and it's the same in this tradition. There are various uh, people upholding the practice who hold various ideas or prejudices about people who are not monks or women, this kind of thing. And to move around this kind of thing with grace, without compromise, I think is very important. It's something that has been quite important for me to not move into areas of holding anger and resentment and oppression and at the same time to speak when it's helpful to speak, to speak when it's necessary to speak. We might all find in our own lives, this is something I run up against myself at various times, every woman teacher has their own story, but each one of us in our own lives has areas where one wants to and needs to look at compromise and how we work with various situations without too much comfort, without too much ease in it, but a, a constant examination, a constant look, a constant clarity about what we accept and what we don't accept, when to speak and when to keep silent. In being authentic, in living an authentic life, there is an opening to all experience, a willingness to be with whatever it is that's occurring, a welcoming of all states of mind, of boredom, of anger, of contentment, of joy, 
of grief, whatever it may be. There's a willingness to be in our life and not move away, a learning how to be with everything that is. Many years ago now, I decided that I would spend a month by myself um, on retreat. I decided to be by myself for a month on retreat. A friend of mine lent me her house, and I stayed for a month in this house that was in the suburbs, but was bordering on some woods. And no curtains in this whole house for some reason. I never quite found out why. But it was um, somewhat of an odd thing. It felt like being in a fishbowl to be in this house and look outside and see all the woods and the lights will be on inside and just all darkness outside. Part of the reason I decided to sit this retreat by myself is because I'd always been afraid of the dark. I'd always been afraid of um, unnameable kind of terrors. I never worked it out ever since I'd been a little child. And I protected myself in a lot of ways when I was a little kid from these unnameable terrors. So I began to sit this retreat by myself. And I um, had wonderful days, great, great uh, warm and very happy days. And I began to notice the first few days were okay. But then I began to notice on maybe the third or the fourth day that every night around maybe 6 o'clock, I would start to feel this sense of dread in my heart. And I I finally realized it that it was because it was getting dark. It kind of didn't click for a while. But I finally realized that it was because it was getting dark. And I would begin to feel this real sense of, of darkness and of dread. As the evening would go on, the feeling would accelerate, and it turned into um, real terror, absolute terror, to the point where I was paralyzed. I would be sitting in the kitchen um, in a place that I felt was semi-safe. No place really felt safe, but this place felt semi-safe because I could see around me. I could see if someone came in the door or whatever. And... um, I would sit just completely paralyzed with terror, just totally in fear. It happened to be the 4th of July uh, weekend that I began this sit on, and so there were all these fireworks happening outside. It was a very kind of uh, exuberant time. But every time I heard a firework, I would get afraid that something was going to happen. And my mind was going wild with what could happen, you know, with the dread. It was just a feeling of, of sort of like da, 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 <laughs> over and over and over again, a very, very heavy feeling. And I began to notice that um, it was an old house and there were a lot of creaks in the house. And I began to notice that every single time there was a creak, every single time there was any kind of noise in the house, my mind immediately would form an image. And the image was of a gigantic foot, you know, of like a, a size 20 foot, <laughs> a, a very big, big person, and um, this person out to get me. And it was very, very quick. I began to notice there was the arising of this image very, very quickly. As the meditation 
uh, deepened, I began to really catch the image. In the beginning, I couldn't catch the image at all. I just was, I was hearing the sound and totally paralyzed. And then after time went on, I began to be able to catch the image. And as I began to catch the image, the terror began to gradually, gradually, very gradually disintegrate, very, very gradually begin to change. But it was quite an experience. It was quite a powerful experience because I was there on my own having to deal with this. I didn't really have the choice unless I wanted to leave, which I didn't want to. As the time went on, the terror began to dramatically change. Um, And I, I noticed this odd thing. I noticed there was an habitual kind of fear that was continuing. I would go by the cellar door, and every time I went by the door, you know, down stairs, I would get this ripple. And I would get in bed and um, put the covers, it was July, remember, and I would put the covers all the ways up on me. I had to feel feel protected, and it, it really took me until the end of the month to be able to take the covers off. So there were these various ways that the fear was was influencing me. But the major part of the fear, the paralyzing aspect, really did begin to change. And a, a great deal of faith arose at that point when I saw that something that had been around since I was very, very small um, had begun to shift, had begun to shift. Wisdom doesn't have any form. It doesn't have any particular way of manifesting. It changes from moment to moment. It can't be stuck in, in one particular way. There's not any way that it looks. It's manifested within each one of us from moment to moment. Through the contact, through mindfulness, there is the development of wisdom. And then we move in ways that are appropriate to ourselves, in ways that may not be appropriate for other people, in ways that are appropriate for ourselves. Letting wisdom manifest in the way that is appropriate is a way to be authentic, is a way to nurture authenticity by not locking ourselves into various rigid ways of seeing how wisdom has to manifest through looking at other people. It's something that has to be found inside. Being in the present moment is a gateway. It's a gateway into that which we want. And the reason it's a gateway is because it is contact with reality. It's being in contact with truth. And being in contact with truth is what sets us free. Let me read you something by Krishnamurti. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution even, neither resisting nor avoiding, it is only then that there can be a regeneration, because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. We can allow the truth to liberate us by being awake. 
we can allow the truth to liberate us by being in contact with our life. Whatever way our life is unfolding, authenticity is an expression of the path, and it's also the path itself. It's an expression of the development of mindfulness. Authenticity is the fruit of practice. It's the freedom to be oneself, to not be coerced, to not be unconsciously driven. The more conscious we are, the more choice there is, the more spaciousness there is, the more awake we are. It's being in our own experience without claiming our experience, without making it into anything, without making it into my experience, without claiming it as I. It's simply being in experience as experience, being in this sensation, aware of this thought, aware of this feeling, aware of this emotion, without the need to claim. In living our own life, there is an openness to life itself. There is no need to claim. And we find ourselves less alienated, less isolated, less preoccupied. When we settle back and we open up, we see clearly Buddha nature, because that is what is there to be seen. Let me finish with a poem by Ryokin. In all ten directions of the universe, there is only one truth. When we see clearly, the great teachings are the same. What can ever be lost? What can be attained? If we attain something, it was there from the beginning of time. If we lose something, it is hiding somewhere near us. Look, this ball in my pocket, can you see how priceless it is? Okay, why don't we um, sit for a moment or two?